0: Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. And joining me tonight is TJ Hafer. TJ, welcome to the show. Salutations. Uh so today, I think we are gathering in the in the court of the Lord <laughs> to discuss to discuss uh our plots and our machinations to conquer Europe or other parts of the world as well in Crusader mm-hmm. Kings 3. Uh TJ I am let's let's start at the top. We both had a chance to play a pretty extensive hands on build of Mm -hmm. the game. Uh, I think the first thing that I would ask you is. What was left to be done? With Crusader Kings, right? Because like when when they announced this, this was one of the first questions asked in, I think, all the sessions they did showing the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was something they've had to be on defense about since since the jump, which is that Crusader Kings 2 became a really big game.
1: Uh, right.
0: There is a ton of content in that thing at this point. I think you memorably described it as professionally modded at this yes. stage of its life, which, which <laughs> it very much is. Uh, so... But that also implies, like, the thing that people do not like is losing content when they go to a sequel. And often that's necessarily part of the bargain. Uh, right. What What was the mission briefing for Crusader Kings 3 in your eyes as a fan of Crusader Kings 2?
1: Yeah, I think that... Sort of the the tack that they've taken, which is probably pretty close to what I would have set out to do, you know, if I had been in charge of it from the beginning is take the things that were core to Crusader Kings that really worked on like a fundamental level about Crusader Kings 2 and make those better first and then, you know, expand on other stuff, you know, after that, Um, you know, obviously... The 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 characters are, you know, being brought to life a lot more with the 3D um, character models that, you know, age and can, you know, like reflect diseases and stuff like that. Um, so they feel more like real people. I know that's an issue. Some people I've tried to get into Crusader Kings 2. They're like, yeah, it's just very flat. The characters don't really feel alive to me. So I think tackling that challenge was definitely on their radar and is something that should have been a priority uh so they they kind of hit the mark on that one um you know with bringing in hooks and you know how schemes work now as an evolution of the plot system which as big of a pillar of gameplay as it was in Crusader Kings 2 it was always pretty rudimentary like there weren't a lot of things you could tweak and you know knobs right. you could fiddle with with it was pretty much you know try pay money to as many people as you can to join your scheme and then wait and you know hopefully it'll it'll work eventually um so expanding on that um fully integrating like the lifestyle stuff from the way of life expansion which i think is pretty universally beloved most people i know that play crusader kings 2 will say that's near the top of the list as far as essential dlc's And now that it's part of kind of the groundwork of Crusader Kings 3, they've been able to do a lot more with it and tie it into a lot of other things. Um, So, yeah, I think that was that was probably the mission statement is like, let's let's take these fundamentals and improve on them and lay a strong foundation to build off of. And, you know, some stuff got left by the wayside. There's a lot of people that are irritated that you know, oh, there's no Byzantine imperial government at launch, and it's like, well, they've said they didn't want to port over the half-assed imperial mechanics from CK two, and that they're going to do it right later. So, uh, I'm I'm not really as concerned about that I think as uh, right. as some people are.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, I think um, I was surprised how important a change the move away from the little portraits to the 3d character models was for me. Yeah, this is like, there is a, there is a hardcore gamer deep inside of me, uh, who can be a little bit snobbish and like, right. There's still that, there's still that like old school wargamer.com energy I can bring sometimes, which is like, Oh, that's just eye candy. That's for serious gamers. Don't need that. But actually, I absolutely did like even even though I knew that the portrait differentiation was sometimes hard for me to even spot. So like Crusader Kings. In any game within a generation, uh, because it keeps getting recast, but within a generation, you are still like involved in several different stories, each of which has a cast of like. Uh, you know, a dozen people potentially, and there's overlap between those stories, but nevertheless, like you're juggling a lot of relationships and people in your head. Uh, And I knew that that was like, I knew one of my big stumbling blocks with that game was it felt like every time I was trying to do anything, it was like I had to do an hour of research to figure out what I'd been doing in the last session. Right. Like who, like, was it, you know, these two really identical portraits, uh, which one of these guys was the guy that I was trying to kill and which one of these was the guy I was trying to convince me to let me marry his daughter. Really important distinction, but visually that stuff could get lost. I was really impressed at the degree to which the shift to the 3D character models in, in CK3 really let me tell at a glance like, oh yeah, this one, this is the dude. Oh, I hate this guy. Yeah, uh, like they have mannerisms. They have an ad, like they have a demeanor in Crusader Kings 3 beyond their their character model, there is just a way about them that within a generation, that cast of characters, it's probably gonna be pretty distinct. I think there was only one time where there were two really overly identical character models, but even then they had different aspects to them. And so, like, you could sort of tell that one had sort of a smug uh, demeanor and the other had kind of a conniving one. Uh, yeah. But it really helped.
1: Yeah. Well, just the way they've incorporated body language as an element of, you know, if, if you have a character who has like a high intrigue score and like the deceitful trait, they'll be kind of the like fingers steepled, sort of hunched over, uh, you know, um, kind of posture and yeah i mean as humans we are very keyed into body language typically so i think that's a a huge probably bigger than most people realize change um to how they're portraying characters but also the way they evolve over time like um you know you can have something like a robert baratheon situation where you have this young strong like movie star handsome knight and then, you know, he accumulates enough stress that he ends up having like a mental break and he becomes like a gluttonous alcoholic and, you know, he gets, you know, old and fat and like you can still tell it's the same character. But, you know, he's he's a lush now. He's, you know, he's put on some weight and, you know, his glory days are behind him. And you can definitely see that in, in how his his character model adapts, um, in addition to just the dynamic aging, which by itself is really cool. So,
0: yeah, I, I, man, the dynamic aging is bittersweet too, right? Like Mm -hmm. there was, um, there was a moment that I had this really great, this was, this was like one of my starter games in Ireland. I had a really good heir who was not as like, not an amazing warrior. didn't live up to like his father, for instance, but was a good all rounder. Mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. he was on a roll, like rolling up other Irish Lords. He was actually, he'd won multiple wars in Wales, uh, despite not being a great general. And I was like, he is gonna like, he's going to be the one to do it. Like we've got almost enough money to saved. We are going to be able to unify Ireland under this guy. And then like, maybe hold it, hold back the British. There's a small chance we'll be able to do it. Anyway, there was a moment where like, I was like okay, I just need to take a breather here. We just need like 5 years of peace. And dude, it was like one of those heartbreaking things where like I didn't I don't look at this guy for a while. When I click back and open up his character portrait, it was like, "Oh god, he's an old man now." Yeah. You know what I mean? It was and it was just really like it was an affecting moment for one. Like the last I checked on this guy, he was like a dude at the height of his powers. Like, you know, that Baratheon character. And the next I check, you could just tell this is a frailer, less healthy, uh, guy. Like he's still capable, but also it's clear that he's in the, you should start thinking about who your heir is, uh, stage of the program. Yeah. And, uh, that, that did improve. He just didn't have time to do it. Um, and then the succession went bad. But just that <laughs> just that uh, vibe of, like, you see these people grow up and age before your eyes changed how I felt about them in a way that surprised yeah. me.
1: Yeah, well, because it used to be, like, you know, there's one portrait for ages 1 through 15, and there's, like, one portrait for ages, like, 16 through 49, and then at 50, you just... Click over and become, you know, an old person. And, uh, but yeah, the fact that it's like gradual now, it can kind of, you know, catch you off guard, uh, cause you might not notice the slow, subtle, incremental changes. And then one day you're like, oh, wow, yeah, this dude is, I mean, it, it makes you contemplate mortality a little bit, <laughs> uh, with, uh, you know, all the generations that pass by, um, of, of, you know, seeing, People go from, you know, being, you know, these these young, strong, ambitious rulers into sort of, uh, you know.
0: The 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 twilight stage. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Well, there was a thing that Gita and I ended up talking about, too, which is that um, because you have the lifestyle focus. uh, Yeah. Aspect of these characters. You have most characters uh, in my experience would like max out one tree and then start another and then they would pass pass away like right. you know, an entire lifetime was enough to master one art. And that was about it. Uh, but one of the weird things is that even though a lot of your like long lived rulers do like decline in some ways they become more frail, uh, this, some of them will continue to gain competence pretty quickly pretty clearly like throughout their lives. And so you also have the uh, effect of you will have an aged, like almost King Lear figure, but even though they're kind of a, a, a live grenade, right? Because at any moment they can just kick the bucket. They're also continuing to expand the things they are capable of doing. And so you're, you're once like warmonger uh, King is also now yes still a great general but also uh has unlocked a number of abilities in the stewardship uh lifestyles right Mm -hmm. and so suddenly like everything in the kingdom is humming just a little bit better right like building projects take less take less long uh tax revenue is just like through the roof compared to what your natural baseline would be and so you'll have this moment where it's like I better prepare for what happens when someone this competent is no longer here. Right. Like, like, because there is no bureaucracy, like it's this one guy and he's just been on the job for 50 years. And in 50 years, he's gotten good at running a kingdom. And when he's gone, I'm going to lose all of that. And then we're going to see what I actually built.
1: Right. And I mean, there's, I guess the, the, there's a slight ballast to that with, um, your, um, council like if you have a really skilled steward counselor and, you know, your badass character dies and his, you know, punk son inherits, like if you have a good skilled counsel, you can kind of make up for a little bit of that, you know, deficit and experience a little bit. It's not exactly the same as, you know, an institutionalized bureaucracy, but it's at least, okay, yeah, this guy who had my dad's back now has my back. So it's not going to be as much of a painful adjustment. Um, but uh, the other thing was that I thought was uh, pretty interesting versus the historical setup in CK two. You mentioned your succession going bad, and the fact that they've they've really locked like single inheritance primogeniture behind a lot of tech progress. Like most realms are going to have partition inheritance for most of the game, um, which I mean I've always really liked playing gavelkind in ck2 because the chaos keeps things interesting. Um, but the fact that that's kind of the default now like it that in the early game it doesn't really matter who you are, you're gonna be fighting your brothers every time a ruler dies. Um, I think that that's oh yeah, you know I think that's kind of a positive thing. it sort of front loads the difficulty a little bit because once you get to a point where you do have single heir inheritance, it's going to feel a lot less uh, unstable, but I always thought one of the the more fun aspects of playing the earlier start dates in CK2 was feeling like it's sort of this wild, uh,
0: oh. wooly, you know. The earlier start dates fucking rule. Like, <laughs> oh my God, they're so good. Yeah. Uh, let's see. You wanna be a Viking warlord who uh, has the option of hanging out in uh Denmark or creating an entirely new political state anywhere you want in Europe? You can do that.
1: Yeah. And then you'll lose half of it when he dies. Like I I'm I'm I love my success my warring successor kingdoms. Any game that, that gives me warring successor kingdoms, I'm I'm all I'm all on
0: board with that. Well uh, so this yeah. is yeah, this is something <sighs> uh you know not new to Crusader King's players. Well, let me put it this way. I think one of the other things they've done well with is making information more readable.: Yes. Uh, I think the move move to a couple different modes of notifications popping up. like you you have the standard um, like notification flags popping up. At the top of your interface. But you also have the scroll, which is just like pressing high level, like kingdom level decisions you need to deal with. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that if the scroll has open items on it, you're fucking up. Like there are moments strategically you do not want to marry your heir because you are holding out for a better offer. There are moments you are, uh, you know, you do not want to create a title because it's going to cost too much money and you need that for something else. But those are. Flagging really important decisions for the thing you are building, uh, for, mm-hmm. the, for the dynasty you're, you're working on. And then you have your more immediate pressing notifications of, like, day-to-day governance. And all of this is tied to info panels that I think do a much better job of unpacking what it is you are playing around with, particularly in how they've reimagined tooltips working. Uh, the sort of hot link tooltips is yeah. brilliant.
1: Yeah, well, and it's like the, the, the flags in Paradox games that we're all familiar with. It pops up the top of the screen to tell you, oh, you should be paying more attention to this. They're almost always like a reactive thing. Like, okay, you either you fucked up or you're about to fuck up. And here's like a big red notification telling you uh, you need to fix this or things are going to go bad. That suggestion scroll is things you could be doing proactively... To help yourself out that like, okay, this doesn't need to happen necessarily. Like your realm isn't going to fall apart if you don't do this, but Hey, just a reminder, you have a claim on that guy over there and you know, (laughs) you might want to declare war on him so that you can, you can expand your realm. Like the, the, I think it's better than a tutorial, honestly, like it's, it's, it is like having, you know, a friend who is good at Crusader King standing over your shoulder telling you what to do. I'm not the first person to describe it that way, but I think that's very accurate. Um, And yeah, I think strategy games in general could kind of learn from that in terms of giving you advice on what you could be doing proactively instead of just letting you know when something needs to be reacted to
0: yeah i think um and i think that's going to be crucial because crusader kings only became more unwieldy as time went on like yeah you know i have this problem with every paradox game where you sit out a couple expansions and you come back and it's just a different game like yeah. you just the things you knew about it no longer apply or lead you in the wrong direction
1: yeah um None of us, still none of us know how boats work in Hearts of Iron 4 at this point.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, all yeah. of us are basically like terrified to send fleets out because we're uh-huh. like, I think this is wrong. <laughs> um, we got spies doing spy shit, presumably, but like. Yeah. Uh-huh. Is, it, is it accomplishing anything? I don't know. I'm pressing buttons and sending yeah. spies around. I've uh, got a
1: spy network at 86%. I'm hoping that that's helping my troops somehow. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, And I think that can, and I think one of the ways that becomes really overwhelming is because, like, yes, while tooltips will explain a lot of base level concepts of the game, uh, it doesn't, this is kind of like the best of both worlds between like tooltips and the civilopedia, right? It's like related subjects come up as you hover over an element that you do not understand and you can sort of tease it apart. I hope that grows with the game, right? Like Mm -hmm. I hope they sort of rewrite and reconsider these things as, uh, the nature of the game changes, but it does really lower a learning curve that was very steep in Crusader Kings. Like I think Crusader Kings was a, it was an easy game to get into and fuck around with, Mm -hmm. but also, I think that belied how tricky it could be to really figure out what was going on under the hood. Oh, yeah. And this seems to be doing that way, way better.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, there were basic, basic mechanics of Crusader Kings 2 that I didn't discover until like 150 hours in. Where I was like, oh, you can do that. That's cool. I wish someone had told me that. Like, I, it, it was very possible to, like, get in and have fun and succeed without knowing these things. But when you learned about them, it was like, wow, that seems pretty fundamental. I think uh, maybe that should have been presented to me earlier. And, you know, one of the most interesting questions I've gotten uh, is, do you think Crusader Kings 3 is easier than Crusader Kings 2? To which my answer was, I think it is, but that is mostly because you have better access to information. Um, There are more mechanics that behave intuitively rather than counterintuitively, and uh, there are more tools to accomplish your goals. Like, it's not like they've just tuned down the numbers to make it easier, but it's just so much easier at a baseline level to interact with and to, you know, have the information you need to make good decisions that, yeah, it does feel a little bit easier.
0: Um, I am. I am curious. You you mentioned there's there's more tools. I, I'm curious, like, do you feel there's more um, ways to skin a cat in Crusader Kings 3?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the plot system, or I think they're called schemes now, not plots, has adds a lot of versatility in term and and also hooks as well. Um, in terms of you know, if I'm a duke, one thing I couldn't really do before is you know I could send out my spy master to my liege's court and see hey, say hey, see what dirt you can dig up on this guy, and then he'll feed me hooks eventually, hopefully. Uh, which then I could use to modify my feudal contract so that I don't owe as much taxes or I don't owe as much levies, and like eventually I'm like this de facto independent archduke within you know the kingdom of East Francia or whatever, and I can really punch above my weight. Um, I also feel like the the tweaks they've made to marriage alliances, where for one it's a lot easier to figure out who you can get an alliance with. What their relative power to you is, why they don't want a marriage alliance, if for some reason they don't, and what you can do about that, and then like the just the fact that they will reliably answer your calls to arms, and you don't have like a weird random. uh, I just don't feel like it. Minus four, like (laughs) the kind of stuff in CK two that was just it was very difficult to parse why certain characters behaved a certain way. I don't feel like that exists as much in Crusader Kings three, which makes it a lot easier for me to be like, all right, I have 800 men. I want to conquer this realm that has 1200 men. Uh, This guy over here has 600 men available and uh, yes, he will accept a marriage alliance with me and I can expect him to honor my call to, to arms without some weird like modifier. I don't even understand getting in the way of that. Um, so it's, yeah, There, there's definitely a lot more options for if you want to go up against somebody bigger than you, what steps can I take to tilt that equation in my favor? There's way more ways you can do that, and it's way more clear um, the steps that are required along
0: the way. Yeah, I, I found that as well. Like, there is much more uh, clarity about both what i'm doing and the intermediate effects of of what i'm doing it's not like things go into a black box and the result pops out that surprises me which is how often ck uh could feel um i also just i don't know if i'm just noticing it more because it's been a while since i seriously played crusader kings uh but i found myself really enjoying governance and warfare a lot more um and i think part of i was surprised at how different uh different culture groups felt in terms of what it was like to govern them and take them to war like the difference between uh you know a saxon levy and a viking army are really huge right like it's just a completely different feel as far as how this society is put together right like your your viking generals have like personal like huscarl guards based on their notoriety it it seems like right and that's just not saxon you know saxons you're building like a little proto standing army a little like classic feudal army but it seems like there's this element with the vikings you can maybe tell me a little bit more about how this plays out over time but it seems much it, it feels much more like you are part of an elite warrior culture where not only are troops precious, but they're things that exist apart from just the uh, sort of standing army you invest in.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's to a large degree it's an exp- uh, an extension of some of the best parts of the pagan mechanics from Crusader Kings too, where you know instead of gold in for upkeep, you're actually paying in prestige. So you know if you're if you're hot shit, if you're a well known Viking warlord, you know you can maintain a standing army without having to really pay for a standing army um which i think is really cool but the other thing that they've done to differentiate cultures that that i really like is the fact that uh like the unique cultural innovations they aren't just tied to the military like a lot of them are like a lot of them are like oh you unlock a unique unit or you know you're a viking you get long ships you can sail up rivers but then there's also these cool economic innovations that are pulled right out of the historical time frame, like uh, if you're French in the high middle ages you can unlock seigneurialism, which completely kind of revamps how you think about your economy because it you know it, it changes you know how your your taxes function and land use and buildings and stuff like that. And you know I get really you know excited over that specific kind of geekiness it's like all right we're not just going to model the fact that these guys had different horsemen from the guys next to them we're going to actually model the fact that these guys had a unique economic system and a unique land use system that significantly affected how their society developed differently from you know their neighbors um so yeah i i definitely think that they've stepped up the their methods of differentiating cultures in a, in a positive
0: way. Yeah. I am really excited to like just hop around the globe in this game. Right. Like, uh, just see what the vibe is when, you know, uh, in North Africa versus Spain versus, uh, you know, Ireland, it's, it's really cool. The, the different vibe of these spaces and the way that, uh, you know, now sort of being put together as a cohesive whole, not something that, that was put together expansion by expansion, right? Where it's like, Oh, we unlocked this culture tree and, and this new time period here to so mm-hmm. have it sort of there from the jump. I'm very eager to see how that all comes together uh, in, in the final game. Um, this is a small thing, but I didn't want to forget about it. I'd loved the music. The music is amazing. Yeah, and like, the thing I want to call out here is, I think, in general, I think Paradox games have perfectly good music, but I also think a lot of the direction they've gone, they tend to do stuff that sounds a bit uh, movie Mm -hmm. score-like. Yeah. And it can be very it can get a little repetitive, right? Like it's, it's a little bit, you you can hear like the John Williams influence and such. Yeah. Uh, Here it's much more just like cool mood pieces. Um, And not, not quite ambient, but it's just very good background music, very atmospheric. And it really has great dynamic elements when events begin popping off.
1: Right. Well, it's I think it's It's like a fully dynamic music system that's different from anything they've done before, where it's like, yeah, it might select the next song based on what you're doing. Like, OK, we're on the warfare playlist now because you're at war like this is like it'll actually in real time kind of dynamically react to what you're doing. So you're not going to get like some sort of like. Uh, um inappropriate for the moment kind of like soaring epic piece of music while you're like building farms in Bavaria or whatever, (laughs) like they keep it pretty chill and then you'll, you'll get these musical stings. Like when, when the Pope declares a crusade and like the moment that that pop-up shows up like crusade for Jerusalem, it plays this like really epic triumphant, like orchestral like it just makes you want to be like, let's go. Like, let's
0: do this. Like it's it's uh
1: Yes. Yeah, every
0: yeah. time you mobilize for war, it's like yeah. here we go. Yeah, mm-hmm. let's do it. Yeah. Um Yeah. And then when you are just in that more contemplative mode where it's like, look, I am just pruning my garden and mm-hmm. building farms and opening a marketplace in a in a farm town. Uh it is the music is a consistent present is a consistently pleasant companion Mm -hmm. in a way that i was really surprised by because even like eu4 eventually i'm like you know what i'm just gonna put on some some of my own music uh here it was both forgettable like i keep talking around ambient uh, because i think ambient now has certain aesthetics associated with it this game doesn't necessarily fit but in terms of the intellectual idea behind ambient music, it's very much doing that, right? It is just creating a sense to accompany an intellectual space you're in. Uh, and I think this is probably one. I think that's the right direction for strategy game soundtracks because these are games you spend ungodly amounts of time in. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so the music to some degree has to be forgettable or ignorable. Uh, and, I think they basically nailed it here.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's it's the reactivity I think it it adds a lot more than I was expecting it to. Uh and I think uh I think it'll definitely have an impact over time um in in terms of, you know, how you how you feel about the
0: music in a strategy game for sure. Um so in terms of we talked about schemes a little bit, but you also alluded to hooks in the beginning. And this is one of the other things I wanted to get to, which is CK three seems to be trying much harder to have this idea of like social currency that exists in this world in a way that doesn't, because I think in, in Crusader Kings two, it's a bit like every person is their own nation state, right? Like you do Mm -hmm. diplomacy with people and they sort of think a bit like, what if you had a tiny little EU4 kingdom that's a person and gets horny? Like, that's kind <laughs> of how the game works. Yeah. Uh, here, I think it does a very good job of like, no, there are, there are international politics in this world, but then there are personal politics that operate according to completely different dynamics, and there are exchanges of like favors owed, knowledge shared. And I think that came through really clearly in this build.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I, it borrows from my perspective, I don't know if this is directly where they got the idea from, but from some of the better uh, recent storytelling style, tabletop role-playing games where, you know, you have the concept of like a fate point or an action point or something where it's like, okay, I can, I can give a concession to this character to gain leverage on them later. And then, you know, I can cash that in at some point and there's sort of a, back and forth economy with it which um you know crusader kings doesn't necessarily have a cyclical economy with their hooks um like some some role-playing games do uh but the idea that that you're you're sort of modeling soft power as a currency within the game that you're you're coming out and saying yeah like leverage matters like leverage is something that you know characters nobles or courtiers in this era cared about a lot and we're going to integrate that in some sort of a a hard and fast way into the gameplay i think it's one of my favorite um, new additions out of everything that they've changed and uh, like how much more fun it is to play as a vassal when you can like i said earlier get hooks on your liege to uh, you know, expand your personal power within this larger realm. Like, I al- almost think like it'd be more fun to just play like a really powerful duke with like a a puppet king to sort of shield you from <laughs> the uh, the arrows that might be coming your way if you were on the throne. Uh, yeah, it's yeah, I think I, it's hugely positive. Uh, change,
0: and I like that it sort of follows the rule of the good role playing session, right? Which is that things happen but that's not the end of it right like the resolution of one thing helps set up the action of the next yeah and for instance one of the things that is really effective here is this notion that schemes leave residue right like to put Mm -hmm. one scheme out in the world chances are you're going to spawn multiple interactions with other people that will then sort of echo throughout your character's life and the knock-on effects from that might extend beyond uh but you know you enter these interesting zones where it's like because i arranged this murder plot against somebody which went off without a hitch but one person knows one person knows that i did it yeah and now they have a strong hook on me and when they come like to you know call it in basically uh it seems like you me if i'm wrong because i i, I might just missed the part of the interface for this like i had a I had a vassal basically come in and demand that I significantly reduce uh the taxes I put on them. Uh basically <laughs> it was going to move to a, I'm paying them uh to be my vassal <laughs> uh to, to model, right? Like and and that was that was painful because they were one of the real breadbasket like leading vassals of my realm and suddenly they were like uh how about you cut taxes and they had a strong hook because they were in on a kill that i had sort of engineered and it seemed like i had no choice but to eat it i can't remember if there was a clear consequence for just blowing them off uh or if i just ignored it but it seemed like the hook was basically inviolable
1: yeah, I, I, I'm i not sure, like, how strong hooks and weak hooks specifically, like, interact with the different demands. I know a lot of the time, uh, if someone has a hook on you and you want to deny their demand, uh, you can choose to just make the secret public. Like, if you have a secret lover, yeah. you can be like, all right, I'm not going to let you blackmail me. Everyone knows I'm I'm an adulterer now, and, you know, I'll just, I'll live with that, you know, yeah. being out in the open, so... Yeah, like you become a known murderer or something, but um, yeah, I'm not sure if yeah. it might, if it's a strong hook, there might be certain situations where you can't do anything about it. Um, I might
0: have just been too spooked by the idea of the Pope finding out that I'd whack a bishop. <laughs> yeah. Um, that was, I was like, mm, that seems bad because I need that guy to give me money at some point.
1: Right. Uh, but that also, like... Speaks to one of the other really interesting aspects of, uh, how, you know, vassal management works in CK3 is that you can have a huge kingdom, but if you constantly are having liberty factions, if you constantly are accepting demands to like require less levies of people, like you can have a really big kingdom that like on paper looks great, but are actually very weak. And like the Duke next door who has a bunch of loyal vassals who have, you know, they're giving him full levies and have, you know, he has their full support, uh, is can actually come out ahead. Like in Crusader Kings two, I feel like being the Duke of Provence and going to war with the King of France was pretty much always suicide unless you had like really strong allies. But in Crusader Kings three, that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. Like you're, size matters to some degree but also how much of a handle you have on your vassals matters a lot as well
0: yeah and you know way too early to tell about some of this stuff but i was also surprised by some of the clever moves that uh the ai made against me like i had a vassal that was very high intrigue um and I think this is actually the same dude who blackmailed the shit out of me, by the way. So I think it's just <laughs> the same the same fucking scumbag. Yeah. Uh, but he was very high intrigue. Uh and one of the things he did to completely get out of control as far as vassals go, was that. You know, as overlord, you can create your own claims on territories, but so can so can your vassals. And so like I was I was sort of eyeing this juicy duchy that I was going to conquer and uh you know, bring into the kingdom. And that would have been like the next to last piece that required to uh like forge the Kingdom of Brittany or whatever. And uh before I could do it, like literally, I mean we are saying like two days before my claim fabricated. Oh man. The dude finished his own claim fabrication and struck and just wanted to walk because it was just hanging there right it was just low hanging fruit and just like ninja it out from under me and at a stroke i had a vassal who controlled territory that was about on par with mine oh uh, wow and i was like we have a big problem now uh, I am not sure what to do about this. Cause like, <laughs> cause once, the, once the dust settled, like I'm checking like, okay, how many guys can this dude level? It was like four fifths, the number of dudes I could, I could raise. And I was like, yeah. that, at that point, it's just a roll of the dice. Like, yeah. Like even if your guy is good, I was, the thing is he was a good schemer. My guy was a better general, but one of the things I did feel in this is like, dude, it's the middle ages. Like combat is risky. Weird shit happens. Yeah and so even if you have the numerical advantage and a significantly better general like it could still break bad for you right well but uh, the one thing is i do feel like
1: it's a lot more transparent a lot more transparent than crusader king's combat was like crusader king's combat you practically needed like a phd to understand what was going on like there's all these tactics being deployed and like unless you pause every five seconds like you don't really know what tactics your army are doing and there's like these hidden tactics like oh yeah if you have a commander with the stalwart trait and at least 12 marshal he might upgrade your shield wall to super shield wall and it's like i don't care about any of that because i'm never gonna see it like ck3 has just replaced that with this advantage bar it shows who's winning at the moment and you hover over it and it tells you why Like, (laughs) I think that's one of the most, uh, like significant changes in philosophy from like old paradox to new paradox is like, let's not try to simulate a lot of like small nitty gritty shit that the player's never going to pay attention to or be able to interact with. Let's figure out a way to bring that up to a level where like, I can actually look at this bar. I can hover my mouse over this bar and I can figure out, okay, this is why we won or this is why we lost, and here's what we could do better next time. And I don't even need to pull up a wiki page to do that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like Crusader Kings 2, I definitely was like my stack big. I hope this is yeah. good.
1: Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was, it was basically just question mark, question mark, question mark profit.
0: Like that's, <laughs> yeah, that's how battles played out. Yeah. Uh, but I also think like. One of the uh God, this is why I love this early game so much too is just <laughs> the the mechanics that are in place to cause things to snowball like into more disorder like there is political yes. entropy in place where like e u four has this argument basically that actually the the trajectory trajectory of history here is by and large towards more central consolidation now admittedly, around like nation states uh but In general, if you are one of those, uh, the trajectory will be towards greater stability, greater ability to weather the storms. Uh, If you're a big multi-ethnic empire with lots of different nations included within it, then EU4, its argument is this gets harder and harder and balancing this together is going to cause you to fall off the technology curve, right? You just become kind of a sclerotic uh, backwards empire because, you know, you just so much potential is drained into keeping all this together. But by and large, the arc of history here is toward uh, bureaucratic consolidation. Mm-hmm. Xander Kings 3 appears to be a game where, like, bad things beget bad things or interesting things beget interesting things. It reminds me a lot of, uh, you know, the Warhammer role-playing system, uh, which yeah. I love, which is that it's very rare that a thing just, like, succeeds and that's the end of it, right? Like, that entire yeah. system is about, like, That system is like critical fumbles are a good idea, but we need like five different gradations of critical fumble. We also need like five different grades of hit and critical hit. And that whole role-playing system is like, yes, the thing you did worked, but also here's the next interesting part of the story. This follows that pattern so much, like schemes, like that residue they leave behind, but also just the fact that This is a game that does not want you to be able to forge large enduring empires, right? Like this is at
1: least not till very later on. Like, yeah, like once you get to the, the late Middle Ages and you can unlock, you know, some non partition succession laws. Finally, then it's like, okay, this is what the late game about is about now is actually building a medieval proto state. But early on, that's
0: not what you're doing really at all (laughs) right and like you know the the tension you have between like do i just keep dumping resources into my central holdings because i know those are going to be with me uh, yeah you know in my air and so i can create like kind of this really narrow high development territory that will punch way above its weight but also will still be will be a tiny little ship Uh, on the sea of, of statecraft in Europe in this period? Or do I invest in expanding this thing, becoming a political force? But my holdover, it's going to be very weak. And every single generational succession is going to have a lot of turmoil involved. And by the way, the solution to that might be create some overarching titles to make it easier to bind this together. But the money required to do that, is going to strangle you for a generation. And then, by the way, you might be a king with no, like, you might be kind of a hollow, like the hollow crown problem, right? Right. Of, I'm the king, none of my vassals actually have to listen to me because they're able to invest in their central holdings. Meanwhile, I have shit for central holdings. All I have is the title that is increasingly hypothetical.
1: Yeah, no. And that's I loved that. Like I was playing in in France and the king was like the third most powerful person in France, like in terms of like economic and military power, which you didn't really see that as much in CK2. I mean, you could have factions that would band together to take on the central authority. But CK3 really feels like you can have this ecosystem where it's like, yeah, this is the kingdom of France. That guy's the king of France. Uh, I'm the Duke of of uh, of Burgundy, and I'm way stronger than him. But you know, I'm I'm kind of cool if he wants to, you know, collect taxes for me. That's fine. Like he's really he's a figurehead. He has his uses, but I'm doing my own thing. Like that that play style feels feels way more fleshed out and way more viable in in Crusader Kings Three, which I I adore that aspect of it. Because, you know, a lot of French kings were not the strongest oh, <laughs> political yeah. force in France. I mean, it was no, probably what was it like the rule? Like what they the did was besiege
0: yeah. their, their peers, right? That was yeah. that was what a French king did was like, yeah. well, time to go Time to go to a siege of Ile de France.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. So, yeah, I, I like that a lot. I like I like that that entropy that you're talking about, and then sort of the layer that they've added on top of that. So it feels like no matter what your fortunes are, you are still progressing towards something is like the dynasty experience. Like you're unlocking these perks for your dynasty over time. And those are yours to keep forever, no matter what from character to character. It doesn't matter if you lost most of your lands uh, it doesn't matter if you're amazing air yeah. died, like you're still making progress towards something that can't be taken away from you short of a game over. That's a really good
0: point. Uh, yeah. I was such a gadfly with this build that I like, I didn't do too much with the dynasty stuff. Um, we're running a little short on time, but actually I think this is the thing. This seems like a great place to close it out because this one, of the big, yeah. like, uh, Hallmark features of this new sequel is this idea that in addition to having these character skill trees, these lifestyle, these uh, you know skill focuses, you also have dynasties. And I love what you said there, where like everything else in CK three is negotiable, like it can all be taken away. Like the nature of Crusader Kings is this is a capricious world, and like you just keep moving through history. There's gonna be ups and downs. I love this notion that okay, but they have given you one thing. There is one thing one sort of progress you're going to keep how useful did you find the type of progress they would let you keep
1: yeah i mean even as i played a couple games that were close to a hundred years i really only got to scratch the surface of it uh even from that um like i think the most i ever got up to was maybe like two or three dynasty perks because yeah it's it's a long haul like they take a lot of of uh, whatever the dynasty equivalent of prestige is called, I can't remember all the terminology off the top of my head. Um, but those those perks can get pretty powerful. Like there's there's one in like the bloodline tree where it's like you can just make it so your all of your dynasty members are more likely to be born with positive congenital traits, which is you know pretty huge. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, especially with, you know, strong and, you know, genius and they have like three different levels to them now. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's it's going to be. Something that will make you less likely to want to like rage quit, <laughs> like if you if you lose your kingdom on one succession and you're like reduced to like a Duke or something like that, you'd be like, all right, well, at least I kept my dynasty progress. Like, I might as well see where the story of this family goes, even though there's been this downturn in fortune, which I don't feel like is something any of the other Paradox games really have or encourage. Like, it's kind of like, yeah, if you lose land, you're, it's it's a setback with no real silver lining to it. Um, whereas if you think about Crusader Kings 2 as a game about building the long-term legacy of your dynasty, it starts to sort of detach your progress from the land a little bit, which uh, to bring back around what we were talking about at the very beginning, I think that kind of thing will dovetail very well into if they want to try to add like a proper imperial government where you're the head of a household and your ownership of land is not really primarily where your power comes from.
0: So I think for me, I came away from this feeling probably the highest on the game since the EU4 preview session like in yeah. terms of this is ready to go like I'm re- like I'm ready <laughs> just just give me this game like yeah. what are you doing what are you doing to me here uh i am curious you you put you, you had more time to poke and prod at it like how like did did you see some warts on this thing that you're that you're hoping get addressed before they release because well, for me, I was just like, this is an unequivocal unequivocal upgrade. Uh, I am ready to get back into Crusader Kings via this. Uh, but but you know the territory better.
1: Yeah. Um, I think the way that I phrased it is that they could release this tomorrow and it would only be like the third or fourth buggiest Paradox launch. Um, so... I think that that it's it's definitely a lot more polished than I was expecting it to be in this stage in development. There is some weird stuff um like the tribal mechanics there were some bugs with with how men at arms worked, which I think they've said they already fixed um structurally, like I'd say it's good to go, and like I totally agree with your assessment that yeah, this is the most probably the most excited I've been after playing a preview build of a strategy game since that that glorious year of EU four where we had to like form a support group when they turned the press build off. Uh so yeah I, I, I think it's I think it's I mean I'm really excited from what I've seen so far. And I don't I don't see there being any like huge underlying like oh no, this is gonna be a problem sort of uh issues
0: with it. Yeah uh so we will keep our eyes open for that one and we will sur- surely revisit it with a full show when it comes out uh yeah. what are they still targeting for release date i think september yeah. is is what they're saying fingers right now. crossed everything yeah. is um it's a weird and bad year it is, and there's a lot of folks who are deciding <laughs> this is maybe not the moment to release their magnum opus. So, right, right. Uh, we will see how things go. We'll hope uh, for for better times this fall, and hopefully, we'll get a chance to play Crusader Kings three then. Uh, but I think that will do it for this week. We'll be back next week with more strategy discussion. Uh, this episode is produced by uh, TJ, actually, who is going to crank this out. Yeah, uh, look at he split. Uh, so if he fucks it up. Uh, complaints directed to tj uh not on me it's definitely not on me it's definitely not on my dog it's definitely not on the air conditioner blasting in the background Uh, (laughs) it's just uh it's all tj uh yep full responsibility you can learn more about the show and discuss this episode with our community at thehead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3 Finally, The is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. You can learn more at patreon.com slash 3MA. also has further information about our super-secret Discord server where we occasionally talk about strategy games. Uh, anyway, we'll be back next week with another episode of The Until then, for TJ, this is Rob Zachney saying goodnight.